Zach Servideo from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up for more than 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Stravideo here from Boston Speaks Up. And I'm here with Three Point Foundation founder, Neil Jacobs. Hi, Neil. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Really, really appreciate um, having been connected to you um, via our mutual friend, A.K. Walker. Thank you. Uh, shout out to A.K. Um, he's a wonderful person and uh, someone I've learned a lot from and enjoyed working with. Yeah, he... Um, on the other side of this pandemic, we'll all have to get together. Uh, I did the first 40 or so Boston Speaks Up podcasts in person, and, and I've obviously I've, I've been safe in doing them um, virtually this year. So the AK podcast was done virtually. You and I are doing this via via telephone. Um, but uh, but maybe the, you know it'd be good for the three of us to get together, talk about some of the uh, wonderful community initiatives that you're up to. I'd love to. As we've discussed offline, Neil, I'd love to. I'd love to participate. Um, I'm going to read a brief, um, just brief intro on on some of your background, so listeners know who, um, sort of whom whom you are. Um, as we kind of kick into um, the conversation, so Neil Jacobs Correct. is the yeah. So Neil Jacobs is the president and founder of Three Point Foundation, a nonprofit organization that offers free educational sports and dance programming to underserved youth in Boston. Jacobs is responsible for the overall management and strategic direction of Three Point. Previously, Jacobs served as outside team counsel for the Boston Celtics for 30 years, making it no surprise that Three Point Foundation is a community partner of the Boston Celtics Shamrock Foundation. A retired partner of the Wilmer Hale Law Firm, Jacobs has spent decades involved in numerous education and basketball programs for youth. Now serving more than 250 students, Three Point runs after-school programs in Boston K-8 schools and operates summer programming at two locations. Um, and as, as we'll discuss, uh, Three Point's model has shifted, uh, has shifted virtual due to the pandemic. Um, so Neil, thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I think at the top, you know, just in your own words, you know, could you give a brief sort of overview and description of what Three Point Foundation is, um, what you're offering to to, to students, and, and then also just speak speak freely, like how, you know how are how is that manifesting virtually um, during the the pandemic that we're all facing here in 2020. Uh, three Point foundation was started uh, nine years ago. Uh, the mission of the foundation is to try to close the opportunity and achievement gap for underserved 
uh, economically disadvantaged youth of, of color. The Three Point has evolved over the nine years. So we started out as a after-school program and a summer program, which uh, did uh, an, an academic program that focused on reading and math skills. And we combined that with an athletic program. Uh, the importance of athletics in our program, particularly basketball, can't really be overstated. It allows Three Point to draw a much broader range of students than would ordinarily sign up or be interested in um, after-school programming. Um, and it, it allows us to use sports, which is particularly basketball, which is really popular in the Roxbury, Dorchester uh, neighborhoods and schools in which we work um, to teach life lessons that can be learned through basketball and learned through sports. And Three Point works really hard to have a curriculum that uh, where the basketball portion reinforces the classroom learning that's going on. Now, as I said, over time, we moved from providing um, of substantive learning in English and math to project-based learning. And we did that because we wanted to move into programming that would be uh, relevant to our students, uh, both in terms of the subject matter and in terms of culturally what was happening in their communities, and which would allow us not to replicate what was happening during the school day, but would allow us to have a different learning experience that would engage students uh, after school um, and allow us to work with them on developing 21st century skills, help foster social emotional growth, and help develop a growth mindset, which are, are actually the best predictors of success in later life, both in school, in jobs, and in the community. Um, the, the 21st century skills we focus on are problem solving, critical thinking, uh, communication, and collaboration. And if you think about the skills you use every day uh, in your job, and most people use in navigating the world, uh, people who are, uh, can, can excel in those areas uh, generally succeed. Uh, on the social emotional side, the real issue for a lot of the kids we deal with because their um, experience is often limited to uh, their neighborhoods is getting a sense of self-awareness, social awareness, and how to make disciplined decisions and um, successfully manage themselves to accomplish uh, goals that they set for themselves. Uh, and, you know, growth mindset, is it focuses on um, encouraging students to be willing to take risks and seeing uh, failure not as something disappointing, uh, but rather as a, a natural thing that occurs and allows you to build skills. So that that's what Three Point has become today. We're focused on project-based learning. We use basketball and now dance, which we introduced a couple of years ago to involve more girls in the program, um, to reinforce what we're 
trying to teach, which is a set of skills that um, supplement what the uh, Boston Public Schools are teaching during the school day substantively. That's great. If that makes sense to you. That's a, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful sort of overview of, of three point. Uh, what, are, what are some of the schools? Can you sort of name drop like some of the schools that you're working with? And like, do you have like a direct relationship with Boston public schools, but what, what are some of the communities? That you know, you're we're two, yeah, we have a direct relationship with Boston public schools. Um, the, some of the schools that we're in, um, uh, and for example, in the Sarah Greenwood School, which is a K through eight school, we work with students in grades five through eight um, after school and in our summer program. Um, the schools we work with are kind of clustered together. There's the Martin Luther King School, uh, which is also a Dorchester uh, school, uh, and um, the Hernandez School. Uh, we do one charter school with one charter school. Uh, Roxbury Prep. We're at the Henderson Inclusion School, where we work with um, some of our students are um, on the spectrum and have. Uh, it's a school that is, includes students with disabilities and brings them into mainstream um, learning. So that's kind of an example of the schools that we work with in the K through eight and some middle schools. Um, but our focus is grades five through eight. That's that's what we have decided intentionally to focus on because that's an area that um, in terms of government programming receives those grades receive the least uh, attention that is early education gets extraordinary amount of funding and a lot of programs in early education a high school group gets a tremendous amount of programming and funding through uh, different sources and it's the middle schools that tend to not have as much of a focus, and from a pedagogical perspective, it's the grades five through eight that sort of direction. That's when children start to be able to think about thinking and think about learning, and it's where a lot of decisions start to be made that really affect the outcome of where of whether a child graduates from high school and whether a child goes to college. So we're we're focused on that group intentionally. That's interesting. And I recall from chatting with you when we first um, spoke, maybe it was probably more than a month back, that what these schools have in common, um, these sort of K through eight schools, but specifically sort of grades five through eight, is that they, and you kind of just, you just hit on this, there's an under um, investment in recreational sports, um, certainly basketball and dance would be on that list of things that aren't offered. And, and so is that, is it a safe assumption to make that the, the schools that you're particularly focused on are the ones that don't have these after school activities, these recreational activities where some others do. And so you can kind of come in and sort of augment, um, you know, existing programs and perhaps a lack thereof, um, at those schools and then also bring some cohesion to the community more broadly, right? And like help those um, those sort of disparate schools actually have a sense of uh, connectivity to each other um, just beyond their individual school, you know, each individual school itself. I, I think that's right. There, there, 
they are connected sort of geographically. There are neighborhoods that abut each other. But mm-hmm. the, the focus on K through 8 is that that particular um, kind of school, and there are more than a dozen of them in, the, in Boston, that, that particular kind of school often doesn't have a large uh, upper school, 6th through 8th grade, uh, number of students compared to a middle school. So there might be uh, 70 to 90 students um, in a K through 8 school in those grades, uh, 6 through 8. And if you went to a middle school, which is focused exclusively in grades 6 through 8, there are probably more like 400 students in that right. middle school. So when Boston sets up uh, after school sports and recreational leagues, uh, the K-8 schools often really don't have enough students to participate in hmm. those leagues. And it's just, it's a function of school structure, not the, um, it's not the intent of BPS to leave them out. But as a matter of school structure, it's very difficult to form teams that can compete uh, if you have 30 boys or 30 girls versus a school that has 200 boys and 200 girls. It's tough to run those schools against each other in a basketball program. So one of the things we did is we went to, um, and this is with support from the Boston Public Schools Athletic Department, is we have gone to K-8 schools that don't have after-school basketball programs, uh, don't have after-school athletics. They're not in any of the middle school leagues. And we've created, in addition to the after-school programming, a basketball league for them. So these schools compete against each other. It's kind of the smaller school league you might think of. Um, It's sort of like uh, the NESCAC in college. They're smaller schools. And they compete against each other in basketball. And so we run that programming um, in the schools, and the students who are in our program then form basketball teams, which have a season and playoffs, um, and they we run the league in in both the fall and spring terms, and we're not conflicting with the BPS middle school leagues because we're within schools that don't have basketball. Don't have so it. you're right. There's an added dimension of we're bringing something to the school and to the children in that school that um, opportunities they otherwise wouldn't have. And that's one of the reasons that sports is so important, and basketball in particular, to what we do. Um, And that's been the biggest thing that's been affected, that the pandemic has affected uh, in our programming, is we can't run a basketball program in person. Um, right. That was going to be my follow-up question is, is yeah, what's, what's it like right now? Yeah, it, it wouldn't be safe. Um, yeah. And we're, we follow the decisions of the mayor and the Boston public schools about mm-hmm. uh, access to, to uh, young people. So we ended up um, to keep basketball alive, uh, creating on our virtual programming uh, basketball challenges. And there are things that students can do uh, in their apartments, in their homes, uh, when we were in lockdown um, without going outside. Now we have uh, drills and other things students can do um, uh, that individually uh, outside. And we encourage them to take 
we create a challenge, like how many times can you do a figure eight through your legs with a basketball uh, in 30 seconds? And we encourage them to take, have someone take videos of them uh, doing it, and they submit their videos to our uh, site, and we post videos and have winners of the challenge. So we're trying to engage the students the best way we can in basketball, work on skills, work on drills that are COVID-19 compliant, and, um, you know, give them a way to stay connected to our coaches uh, and to each other through basketball without actually playing the game. Um, To be clear, that's not as satisfactory. I mean, there, there's there's nothing. Right. It, it doesn't replace um, adequately uh, the actually being out in the court, being with a coach, being with teammates, having an opportunity. With the team. to, right. You know. So, yeah. I, it, but it's the best we can do under the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I kind of want to go back those nine plus years ago. Like I, I asked you this pre-podcast, like when you first came up with the idea to create the, the three point foundation. Um, so when you're at your law firm, it's mandatory to sort of retire at 65. So you're in your late fifties, early sixties, and not everyone can approach, uh, approach Wick Grosbeck, the, the Celtics um, managing partner and, and, and sort of, you know, owner. Um, but you were able to, right. And, you know, as, as sort of outside counsel for the Celtics for 30 years. So, what was, um, can you just describe sort of like that point in your your career as you were sort of like eyeballing that next chapter and sort of like, the, you know, that, that purposeful existence you wanted to have like in retirement and, and just out of curiosity, like, how, you know, how was it pitching the idea to, to Wick Grossback and just can you give a bit of background on sort of the, 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 the founding story, um, if you will, for, for Three Point Foundation? Well, I... Um, when I was, uh, as you mentioned, I have been uh, outside team counsel to the Celtics since the 19, early 80s and um, continued in that position until I retired four or five years ago. Uh, and I've known almost all the generations of owners uh, of the Celtics and worked for them. Uh, it, it When the new ownership group, which is no longer new, They've been around for 17 years. When the new ownership group um, took over, which was led by uh, Wick Grosbeck, uh, they had a commitment to doing things for the community that was really went way beyond um, what previous owners had done. Mm-hmm. And so they were running what I would describe as experiential programs. They would go out and bring a player to a school. There'd be an event, and it, would, it was great for the youth at the school. But th- there was no follow-up from my perspective, the way I looked at it. And so I went to WIC, and in the context of thinking, well, what am I going to do next after I'm a lawyer? Um, and I was thinking about what kind of youth program, because I've been very interested in teaching. I've, I used to take uh, weeks in the summer off to work at the Red Auerbach Basketball School mm-hmm. at Brandeis in its various places. I've always coached youth basketball. So I thought that would be something that would be great to do. And my connection to the Celtics was perhaps I could convince the Celtics to start running 
youth programs in the city. Mm-hmm. And I made a pitch. I had a plan worked out that how it would fit into the Shamrock Foundation, fit in what the Celtics are doing, were doing at the time, which was all fairly in its early stages. And Wick, at the end of the conversation, said to me, you know, you seem so passionate about this. You should do it, and we'll help you. makes much more sense to have you, given your passion for it, try to uh, start an organization like this. And in, in his words, we'll sprinkle it with Celtics green and white. You'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll create a halo around you to help you create sort of legitimacy in, uh, and, and authenticity in going Wonderful. out to work with young people. Yeah. And now having made the pitch, I had never thought about leading it, but having <laughs> made the pitch... I couldn't, wasn't really wasn't in a position to say, no, that's no. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And then I thought, I have no idea how to do this. Um, I've, I'm I, I, not from the community. I have, have not uh, worked in after-school programs. I really don't know what, what I just agreed that I would do. And I really spent about a year at that point going around to different basketball programs in Roxbury and Dorchester and talking with coaches and kind of getting to know some of the people in the community uh, and looking for where was there an opportunity to bring something new to and something impactful to that, to the community, especially Roxbury and Dorchester and kind of, what emerged from that was this notion of three point of combining basketball, but with an academic program that had very high expectations for the students and tried to teach to the students' strengths. And that also, and would translate into a summer program. So there could be year round continuity so that it had a transformational impact as well as being experientially a wonderful thing for students to do. And having gotten the idea of what I thought I wanted to do, um, I then hunted around for partners because I lacked, frankly, the substantive expertise to do any of it. Mm -hmm. And, And I kind of think of myself as a facilitator of bringing different groups together. And uh, because of the, some of the relationships I developed during the year, I met Charlie Titus, who was the athletic director and coach at that time of basketball at UMass Boston. And he put me in touch with a professor, uh, Joan Arches, who thought this was a great idea and began creating curriculum. And she'd spent 25 years teaching and working in the community with underserved kids. So I suddenly had a curriculum I shouldn't say I, Three Point, had a curriculum director of, who was superb. And then um, I just kept finding, this is my, my rule of serendipity, which is if you're trying to do good things for people and you're not worried about yourself, connections, good things just happen. Yeah, absolutely. Keep, and so I kept meeting more people I met. Keith McDermott, who was the head of the Reggie Lewis Center, and we eventually had a location at the Reggie Lewis Center to do our programming, 
And through doing our programming, when our kids would go back into schools, principals from the schools would reach out and ask us if we could bring our programming to their school. And so there was a whole incremental uh, growth of three-point. We've never had a business plan. We've never... We've only recently developed a strategic plan because it just keeps growing incrementally because of, the, frankly, there's so much need that if you can serve some of that need, um, there's a place for you uh, to do your work um, in the community. And the other half of that was the summer program where I'd been a trustee and outside counselor for the Fessenden School in West Newton, which is a boys' uh, junior school, grades pre-K through nine, which has a boarding component. And I went to the headmaster there and said, I'd like to use your campus for a summer program. And he said, and a guy named Dave Stetler said, sure, go ahead and do it. And we just started running a summer program there where we transported our students from the Reggie Lewis Center out to the Fessenden campus, which for them was a great change of environment, used these tremendous facilities, and then at the end of the day would bring them back um, to the Reggie Lewis Center. So our summer program became um, a huge draw and a big highlight of what we did for our youth. And so all of these things just came together. And from that, we've become more disciplined and developed a program and approach to what we're trying to do and a strategic plan for what we're trying to do. Right. Um, So that's the story of of how we got started. Nice. That's that's really interesting. And you you hit on the, and you, it was a, there's a, a lot of pieces and I love that, like the law of serendipity, I couldn't, couldn't agree more sort of. Put, put good intentions out there and, and try not to focus on yourself and just, you know, do good things and, and, and have a focused sort of uh, goal or set of goals. And, you know, like minds are going to attract your way and, and, and you can do some really cool things in the world. Um, and, and the UMass Boston relationship, it, it seems to have blossomed, blossomed from there. You, you mentioned in the, in the pre-podcast sort of Q and a, uh, you, you wouldn't be able to have nearly sort of the, the impact without, um, you know, the University of Massachusetts, Boston, um, you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to have as much impact with, you know, without them. Um, has that kind of developed into an, an official relationship? And also, could, like, just I wanted to double click on that for a moment. Like, it, there, there's an increased need of sort of um, humans, sort of volunteers, like participants in, in and around, you know, pr- providing um, some of the virtual support for Three Point Foundation, which, you know, if, you know, if if people listening haven't figured this out yet, it, there's a lot more challenges to running um, businesses, which um, in, in organizations with tip, which typically require um, in-person interactions. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot more um, nuance and more resources required. There's hardware required, software required, humans required to sort of trying to come up with. Um, a level of service to provide, you know, your constituents. Um, and so certainly that is the case for Three Point Foundation. It seems to me that um, UMass Boston has been a good source of sort of um, not only sort of curriculum and sort of like the frameworks that have, you know, 
matured um, with three point, but but also sort of provided some of the um, you know support network that that is helping sort of nurture you know these two hundred fifty plus students you know virtually right now. And is there any? Would you like to sort of expand on any of that a little bit more? Yeah, let me take it um, in two parts, Zach. One, one is the, the what is developed at UMass Boston, and the second. Um, what virtual programming is like. Um, sure. The, the, at, at UMass Boston, um, we, we today have a memorandum of understanding which makes us a signature program for the College of Education and Human Development. But to understand that, I have to go back to our program design, which is we have a teacher uh, that is establishing uh, a framework for the students to l look at and develop their own projects to work on. As part of that framework, the teacher acts more as a facilitator, not as a, a, a lecturer. And the students end up working in small groups, um, usually groups of three or four. A, a UMass Boston student is in the classroom with the little pods of three and four to help and again facilitate with those students their research analysis project development. Those students from UMass Boston play a critical role in our program design because most of those students are from the neighborhoods that the kids are from, mm -hmm. our students are from, and they are role models, mentors, and they're from our students' perspective, these are really authentic people. They are teachers, mentors who come from the community and have gotten to the point of success of being at, of being at UMass Boston. So there's a whole connection there that's incredibly important to us uh, in terms of the development of the youth we teach. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it turns out, and this was, an, again, an unexpected, unanticipated consequence, that for the UMass students, and there are, there are roughly three to five in a classroom, for those students, this is an incredible learning experience. They're, they're getting, coming from the School of Education, they're getting to learn about the Boston Public Schools. Mm -hmm. They're getting introduced to the principals of those schools. But more, most importantly, they're working with students and getting to see what it's like to work with students um, from the Roxbury, Dorchester area. So if they make decisions to go back and teach in Boston, they're informed about what that teaching experience is like. And very close relationships, professional but close, meaningful, develop between the UMass Boston students and the young people that they work with. The, at some point, the dean, a guy named Joe Berger at, the, at UMass Boston, uh, at the College of Education, said, you know, we had to offer working in three-point as a program that counts towards what is known as pre-practicum hours, which is something that a student has, a college student has to obtain to get their license. So we now are running two programs. One at UMass Boston that helps students gain the hours 
and have the learning experience they need to become great teachers. And the program we run for our youth wow. in the Boston Public Schools. That's so, There's that's a very great. formal, it, it, it's, it's again, completely unintended, unanticipated consequence. And the UMass Boston has stepped up in a huge way to support Three Point uh, by uh, encouraging their students to participate uh, in our program and giving some credit for what the students do in, a, in our program. Now, when you go, when we go virtual, and we went virtual in March, and when we had the school uh, shutdown, mm-hmm. the, the, the we started. It took us one week to create a virtual online program, and then we had to keep improving it. But we were providing programming about um, six weeks before BPS formally began providing programming in a uh, institutional way. And what we found out really quickly is it's much harder to do virtual programming, both from the student's perspective and from the program's perspective, to make it impactful and meaningful. And it requires far more resources from the program to make it impactful and meaningful for the student. And we started out, as you mentioned, first there's just a problem that's a technology problem, which is do the students have Wi-Fi in their homes? And do they have the hardware that's going to let them get online to learn? And all of our programming is done in a way that we want students to use their laptops, but if there's a problem, a student can use his or her telephone mm-hmm. and get on our programming and participate. So we had to find technologies that were phone-friendly as well as hardware-friendly, or as well as, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, phone-friendly, as well as being friendly for laptops. Um, and then what we found is that, uh, as everyone, I'm repeating something which we've all learned at this point. Uh, you know, students have a limited tolerance for sitting in front of a screen. Um, that the formats for learning have to be interactive uh, to really keep the student engaged. So you need breakout rooms, uh, challenges, um, and you have to break up the formatting. It can't be a Zoom speaking head. You need videos music, anything that will move the programming along but breaks up what the student's actually seeing and participating in. And that requires much more staffing than, and much more planning than in-person programming. So, it, for example, we run breakout rooms in all of our sessions so that if we have basketball coaches and we're going to run a breakout session with the basketball coaches. Instead of having one coach work with a basketball team, which is what we normally would do in person, we have three or four coaches who take the breakout rooms and are working with students in small groups. It, so everything, it, the irony is that at a time when it's much more difficult to raise funds for nonprofits, because rightly so, or let's just say for nonprofits like ours, because I think rightly so, people are focused on COVID and they're focused on issues that that relate to social justice and systemic issues. 
and some of the traditional programs, which I would argue are also focused on systemic issues, have been pushed to the back in the fundraising queue. Um, right. So at a time when it's more difficult for an after-school program to raise funds, the costs go up. The costs yeah. are much greater in, in that environment. So there is kind of a irony to that, that another unintended, unforeseen consequence that we've had to deal with. But we have. Our supporters have been very generous, and we're able to keep the programming we need to keep in order to impact and engage with our students who need more help now more than ever. Uh, we will keep that programming um, current, interesting, uh, fully relevant, and engage with the students. So we're very happy about that. That's great to hear. I'm curious, you've alluded, you know, alluded to the social justice movement. And obviously, there's Rightfully so, I think, it, and wonderfully so. I think it's it's important that the you know the Black Lives Matter movement continue, continues to have momentum and 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 lots of um, you know really clear and and valuable important calls to action um, to have you know better diversity and equity and inclusion sort of across society. How has that impacted Three Point Foundation? And and you know I, I recall from the first time we spoke like. Even before, you know, it seems even in the in the years prior to to this year, this this pandemic year, sort of George Floyd's um, death and and the, and the subsequent protests. Like I, you had mentioned to me that you know at times in the past you've, you've you've had some you know questions from parents like why are you doing this like and 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 I, and I recall you saying like oh why do you even have to ask you know and, and sort of I, I think there's there's an interesting. Um, is an interesting role three point plays as sort of um, an organizational blueprint uh, for others to embark on community oriented initiatives to help the youth of Boston, but certainly like help youth anywhere, like get the support structure that they need um, to start to develop the right, decision-making as they're having more of that critical thinking in, you know, grades five through eight, as you alluded to earlier. Um, so, so I see like everything you're doing at three point, like I'm just a student right now. I'm very fascinated by it. Like I want to capture it. Like I'm, I want to share it with the world via Boston speaks up. I want to internalize it. I want to metabolize it. I want to, I want to share it with others. Like, you know, that I know to be in positions where they're interested in developing curriculum and programs for youth in other places outside of Boston. Um, so I'm very uh, inspired by what you're doing. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Like, There's a really interesting sort of like strong alignment with, with the sort of social justice movement. But I'm just curious, like how, how has this year been? And like, like how is your organization and you specifically sort of, you know, how is it, inter, you know, interacting with these communities that you're helping They're you know, they're underrepresented communities and, and underrepresented in the sense that, you know, they're, they're, they're people of color, they're, they're, they're black and brown, they're, they're, they're not as well represented in, in Boston's strong innovation community. Like they're, they're, um, they're young people that are, you know, like more likely than, than uh, white youth in the city to graduate high school, like, you know, and you you as a as a it just so happy you know it happens to be a white you know 
gentleman from from Newton. Um, you know, how is that? How how have you found race to be? Um, you know, a, a factor in, in three points sort of evolution and, and how is race relations in the, in the, in the Black Lives Matter movement this year sort of, um, sort of intertwined and, and my, in, in, in a romantic sense, my hope would be almost like accelerated, like the momentum of what three points has built. Um, so I know that's kind of like a, a large sort of monologue I just delivered on, on sort of, you know, race in the country right now and, and how three points sort of, responds to a lot of the diversity and equity and inclusion improvements we need in society. Um, but just speak freely on that topic. And, and if you could give any sort of examples, anecdotes from, you know, over the years, things you've learned, like, I'd love to learn, you know, from you, I'd love, you know, I'd love for listeners and, and, and sort of the broader public to kind of get an understanding of like, um, what, what it's been like for, for three point foundation. And, and then also sort of like a look toward like, you know, given what you've learned, like what's, What's ahead? Well, you, you did pack a lot into that your um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, monologue on different different questions and different issues. Let me take up a few of them, and if I miss something, feel free to um, you know, draw my attention back to it. Sure. Um, in in today's environment and, and the actual program delivery, almost everybody at three point with the exception of uh, me, comes from the community, and they're people of color. So th- th- there's never at the student level or, or the school level a question of, sort of authenticity um, or, or, or any kind of distrust that there might be, you know, some other motive. And our curriculum, so that's the people side, on the curriculum side, what we've done, um, because we create our curriculum, Joan Archers creates the curriculum every every term, is as the social justice issues that we're talking about became prevalent, we've all we focused our students with the scaffolding we erected for the projects that we're going to work on um, was uh, was things topics like communicating for social change, and we asked students to look at their community and things that they'd like to see different with our systemic problems, how they'd like to see them addressed. And they did a lot of research, um, uh, a lot of mapping of what assets exist in the city, and they got to interview, and in part this was because of the pandemic, because we were virtual, they got to interview city leaders and, um, uh, and get their views about how systemic issues could be addressed. Uh, They interviewed Kim Janey from president of the city council, Andrea Campbell. Uh, they introduced the, uh, uh, Nora Baston, the um, uh, a superintendent from the Boston Police. Um, they, they interviewed a whole. They interviewed some of the Celtics players. Uh, Enos Cantor came on and spoke with our kids uh, about social justice and his experience in Turkey, um, and and systemic problems. And, and so they were working, the curriculum was working on the very issues that everyone's focused on right now. And the students were asked at the end of their research and analysis to create videos that would um, show their solutions, um, address problems, um, and create podcasts. Uh, I don't think they're at the 
sophisticated level that they're competing with you yet, but they're creating podcasts on these issues. Um, and so, so substantively, we take some, we, we are current. We're looking at what are the issues in the community, and we always look at what are the issues in the community the students want to address and ask them to do their, to pick issues that they're interested in, work on those issues, and come up with projects at the end that they can present to a knowledgeable audience. And they do. And there's outstanding work done by this, by this group of students. So in terms of kind of like our authenticity and our currentness and our focus, that's, we're at the leading edge of that. Um, that's great. The, the, the part that's personal, um, which is what you, you kind of had in there, is that you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm a white Jewish guy who grew up in Newton in an entirely a materially well-off community. And in a time, you know, I'm, I'm almost 70 years old, at a time when, when I went to elementary school, you used to go home for lunch, and your mom would be there with a sandwich and and you'd watch Big Brother Bob Emery, and then you'd go back to school for the afternoon session. I mean, it, it just was a, such a different world um, than the communities that I work in now. And when I showed up initially, before Three Point had traction, frankly, the fact that people from UMass Boston, like Charlie Titus and Keith McDermott, um, and the connection to the Celtics, that got me some legitimacy. That got me through the door to talk with schools and with people and try to interest others in our programming. But there was always somebody who would look at me and say, what are you doing here? This is not your community. And this is, you know, nine, ten years ago. Um, and I could never come up with a good answer. I, I, I was stuck. As a hot, whatever I say is going to sound very uh, sort of self-promoting. I don't know how to answer the question. I mean, the reason I'm here is because that's how I was brought up, and because that's what my tradition that I was brought up in believes you're supposed to do. You're supposed mm-hmm. to help other people. That's mm-hmm. one of the things we're, 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 we're required to do as people. And so eventually I got around to just falling back on an old lawyer's trick of answering a question with a question. And so someone would say to me, well, what are you doing here? Why, why is this something you're interested in? And my answer would be, why do you ask? Mm-hmm. And that would usually end the conversation. And it, we, we, the, you know, somebody would say, well, I don't want to go to the next point, which is to say, well, I'm distrustful. You know, we've been burned before. Uh, and uh, usually that didn't happen. We would, that would end the conversation. But I was surrounded by enough allies who were from the community and highly respected that it got me into a place where folks would listen to me and take me seriously. And now Three Point has its own momentum and legitimacy, you know, in the city, in the school system, um, with the, something called Boston After Schools and Beyond, which runs the summer programming. So, you know, today Three Points an opportunity priority partner of BPS, which is a designation that only a few programs get, and it means that you've sort of been vetted, and the quality of your program is extremely high, and you're one of the few programs eligible 
for city funding. And similarly, in the summer, we're designated as a summer learning academy, um, which, again, is a quality uh, you know, endorsement by the BPS and by Boston After School and beyond. So we, we moved past that. Um, but, you know, I... Uh, I, I think the way I deal with it today is three point has nothing. It's not about me. It, it, it's about kids. It's about people from the community. It's about the community helping themselves within the community. And I was just a facilitator that kind of brought all the different uh, forces together. I had foot in different camps. I was, you know, a, uh, a lawyer in a large law firm representing the Boston Celtics, and that's one camp. And at the same time, I now have you know deep and abiding relationships and friends who are from Roxbury and Dorchester and are highly respected people in that community. So uh, that's the thing I think I bring, which is this being able to bring assets from other places in my life. Um, to help underserved kids, and that's what yeah. I'm. That's what I'm trying to do now. That's wonderful, and that comes from your parents, right? Like we we covered this in the pre-podcast questionnaire. I asked you the most important lesson you learned from your parents, and you said giving attention to and recognizing the worth of everyone, regardless of the social status or race, um, and and the importance of acting to improve the world. Like, is that is that really like you? And we speak about that a little bit. Like, you know, you're your relationship with your parents and sort of um, what they in instilled in you is, is clearly a, you know, a parent here, you know, nearly, you know, 70 years later. Well, it, it, uh, my parents were extre I mean, extremely caring, loving, and supportive. Um, my father, and it was by example, um, my father would stop and talk to everybody. If we were in a store, he'd talk to the cashier. And he was interested in the cashier and what they were doing that day and their life. And if we were in a pharmacy, he'd talk to the person behind the counter. And if we were in a parking lot, he'd spend time with the parking attendant before we, you know, moved on. And My kind of guy. Today he would have had a podcast. But, but, back, but, but that just sort of uh, by osmosis became something I care about. I know the security guards in my building at 60 State Street. I know, I, you know, the receptionists. I know. Those are the people that I, everybody deserves respect and attention. And that's just something that I grew up with. And so I, I that that's a value I've carried with me. And, and as I mentioned uh, in passing before, you know, in the Jewish tradition, there's a concept called uh, tikkun olam. Mm -hmm. And it's central to the the Jewish tradition, and it, you, it, it's it's something which is like water or air. You just breathe it in if you spend time within the Jewish tradition. And tikkun olam means you're supposed to fix the world, but very clearly you're told you're not supposed to fix the whole world. You're supposed to find something that you can do that will make some part of the world better, and that's a requirement of every human being. And and it's and, and that is incredibly meaningful to me, uh, and it's part of my DNA, and that's why I said to you before, I can't really. Ex how could I explain that to somebody uh, who asks why are you in my community, and not have them sort of shake their head and say I just got a someone was just preaching at me, right? And, and yeah. I don't want to 
do that. Um, but that's 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 the truth. Right? That's, that's just the way that I was brought up, and that's how um, I got into working with youth and working with underserved youth, as it seemed like there were several things I was good at. One was I had lots of knowledge and connections in the basketball world. Uh, another was I loved education. I cared about education. I'd done teaching. Um, and that in my retirement, um, which doesn't really seem like a retirement right now, <laughs> but in my retirement, I wanted to say, why don't I put those things that I know I'm good at to good use and help some young people who would benefit from the help and, and ask nothing in return. Yeah. And just do it. And that's what I do. Yeah. You're, it's that simple. Yeah. You're, you're, if I could, if I could sort of summarize, summarize that your, your, your purpose is to constructively work with your community. <laughs> like that's. Yeah. And, that's and, 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 and the, and the funny thing is, is that and this is a lesson I hope whoever listens to this takes with them is that if you do that, if you try to help make the world better in the way that you can, and you ask for nothing in return, you receive an enormous amount in return yeah. in terms of your relationships with other people, in terms of your own personal happiness, in terms of bringing meaning to life. And that's why I couldn't give the answer to the question, because that sounds yeah. so hokey today. Yeah. Right? And that just, nobody talks like that well, uh, outside of a church or a temple. Well, I think it's, you know, folks are getting more woke these days and you, and you're, you're just, you've been ahead of your time, Neil, but that's why, I mean, this type of purpose and these intentions you're communicating, it's why you and AK Aquaker have, have hit it off so well and developed your bond. And it's why AK knew to connect Zach's video and Neil Jacobs. And here we are. Right. So I think, um, this is actually a manifestation of like, um, you know, that, that good coming back. I'm certainly, my life's more enriched for like having met you and not yeah. befriended you having this conversation. So it's, you know, it's, I think it goes beyond, it goes beyond the churches. It goes beyond, you know, and I don't think it's hokey and I know you're kind of being, you know, joking. Like it's, it, I, it seems to me, um, and I just look at this young generation too. Like we recently brought on a wonderful young woman onto our team at fabric media and it's just like I, I i see a sense of there's a sense i actually use the word did i was very impressed with the first interview there's a sense of mindfulness um that you know i, I think you, you almost have to have um being you know a young person trying to navigate the world where everyone's digitally connected we're in a pandemic like it's um you know my my hope is that people kind of lean on those um lean on principles you know and as you alluded to like early on in the discussion like the things you're trying to instill in young people are you know the soft skills um you're trying to help hone those those soft skills that will help them succeed horizontally like across any any industry or endeavor they kind of embark you know they, they take on and i think that that's really important yeah educators would sort of put us in the bucket of non-cognitive skills <laughs> and it's and I, I kind of bridle at the non-cognitive designation, but because it, they're the most yeah. important skills. Right. And it's and, and you know in, the, in talking about the 
you know, the rule of serendipity. My connection to AK and then from AK to you is exactly an example of the rule of serendipity. Mm-hmm. AK, as you know, our, our listeners don't, but AK is a, you know, very hip entrepreneurial uh, black man who does incredible things in the nonprofit area, in the um, in, in teaching, in with youth, and if you looked at a kind of like seventy-year-old Jewish guy from Newton, and you looked at AK, you'd say, what could these two possibly connect on? We're from mm-hmm. such different places, yeah. but we do because we both care about sort of similar things, and neither of us are asking for anything. And, and when when I you know when AK needed needed some help on one of his programs, I jumped right in yeah. and helped them out on a program. Yeah. And, and and that's just that's what I hope more people who have kind of the resources and background uh, will do because yeah. it's very meaningful and it's how we will it will accelerate change which we need desperately. Yeah, and and it's interesting. A follow-up point to that, and then I have a, a fun kind of last question I want to ask you. Um, but I met AK. The reason I was connected to AK is is a friend of mine, Robert Hughes, who works at First Republic Bank. He was introduced to me by Conrad Paquette. Um, Conrad Paquette is is uh, works at Boston Business Journal, and and that's kind of how I have Boston Speaks Up as a relationship with Boston Business Journal. Conrad is is a sweetheart great friend of mine um he's like oh you should meet robert he was at first republic bank like you guys will hit it off for like all these you know you, you guys care about you know the innovation community and and learning and sharing and and so i you know i met robert for drinks like more than a year ago and we you know we just caught up on a personal level and he got to know we got to know each other personally and when things were really um uh, when the protests were were beginning um, across the country, but certainly in Boston, following George Floyd, you know, ro- you know, Robert and I, like, we reached, we were like talking to each other, like, oh, what can we do? He's like, oh, you know, I have, I have a friend I'd love to introduce you to. I think he'd be great to talk to for the podcast. And he introduced me to AK. And it's just so interesting, like the, se- you know, it's just you put these, you just put out the, you know, consistent sort of, you know, positive intentions, and you just, you know, you maybe a bit vulnerable and just like sharing with people and getting to know your, um, you know, getting to, you know, and, and taking the time and not being you know, so focused on what's in your own, you know, self-interest to get to know your security guards or getting to know, um, the folks, you know, checking you out at the grocery store. Like, um, I'm of a very similar, um, sort of mindset of, of your father and just like getting to know those folks. But having done that, you know, I met this person and this person and that person. And all of a sudden I meet AK and boom, now I'm talking to you and I get the opportunity to ask this question, which is, um, I'm really curious and, and I'm a big, so I'm a huge Celtics fan. Like I just spent the last couple months watching NBA bubble and, um, I'm enough of an NBA fan that I'm keeping an eye on, but like I totally was all in because the Celtics were still in and I listened to toucher and rich and I love that they do their interviews regularly with Danny Ainge. Um, big fan of Danny Ainge, um, loved him as a player. He was very theory like myself. He wasn't afraid to get into a fight like those. I mean, as you know, those eighties and early nineties, like Celtics teams, like they were, 
you know, the, the way basketball was played a, a few decades ago is a lot different than it was now, right? Things that are, per, you know, t- um, flagrant fouls in, in the NBA today were just like non-calls in the 80s, right? When you first started working with the Celtics as, as, um, as outside counsel for the team. So you had alluded to this in the pre-podcast questionnaire. So I must ask, can you share, share a story about that dynamic between Red Auerbach and Danny Ainge? Um, I'd be happy to. I, 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 I was team counsel in the early 80s through early 90s. I go back that far. Red was a really interesting person in that um, he had no filter. Whatever it is he was thinking, he would just tell you. And that, that's part of what made him uh, incredibly successful as a coach um, because of the way he would his honesty in relating to players. It also meant that sometimes it would be, it could be pretty brutal. Um, the, uh, when Red was also a genius in terms of figuring out what was the tactical angle he could play on something. And so in a, I don't know if any, everyone remembers, but Danny, when he graduated from college, went to play professional baseball mm-hmm. uh, and made a commitment to the Toronto Blue Jays and was the starting third baseman for their team. Um, and Red's idea was, well, why don't we take him in the second round and then see if we can persuade him to take, to play basketball. So as a second round pick, you're picking up one of the best basketball players, college players of, of his year or Danny's year. Um, and you're kind of not really wasting a pick on him, even though he's playing pro ball, somewhere else for a baseball team by taking him in the second round. Red drafts him in the second round. And then Red has a conversation, and Danny decides he's going to leave the Blue Jays and come to the Celtics uh, based on that conversation. And, And then what happened is the Blue Jays decided they would sue the Celtics. Yeah. Um, and 
one of the things I learned about Danny is that he's the, one of the most competitive people in the world. He, he, when we had nothing to do in the, in the trial in New York, um, we'd find a basketball court and he would challenge me and all of five foot five to a one-on-one game to 10 and give me nine points. And all I had to do was make a basket and I would get the ball on every made basket. And he was just confident I could never make a shot against him. And I, and he just needed to compete against somebody, right? Cause there was no way I was going to, uh, you know, beat Danny. So I got to meet him then as a very young person, 20, 21 years old, just out of college, having just married, you know, very, at the very start of his life. And then, you know, fast forward, you know, 30 years later, he comes back as the general manager, now president of basketball operations. Right. And I'm still with the club and I get to meet him in a whole nother phase of his life. Um, and, uh, he's just a pleasure to work with. He's very funny. He's very honest. He cares about the players. He cares about the team. Um, deeply, um, but he doesn't fall in love. He doesn't fall in love with players. Yeah. He, he'll do it. Everything's his best for the ball club. Uh, so it's been a great experience. He's, uh, it's been wonderful. It was wonderful working with him for many years. I, I enjoyed yeah. that. That's really cool. The um, I didn't know that the Blue Jays not only sued, but successfully sued the Celtics. And it's, Good, good for the yeah, they, they claimed we interfered with their baseball contract, yeah, and right. we claimed that they released him from his baseball contract, and they were interfering with our Celtics contract. And based on yeah. that, we slugged it out for five days and then lost to a New York jury. Oh, as far as I can tell, we're all Knicks fans. Bunch of Knicks fans, right? Yeah. What was the? Do you remember what the amount was? I do, but you, I will, you'll never get me to say it. I'll never get you to say it. <laughs> but, but by today's numbers, inconsequential. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, and, and I hear what you're saying about Danny. I mean, it's like it, he's he has some. He has a, there's a sense about him that he's um, he's a player's general manager, and like he's like very you know respectful and honest with players. But that honesty also comes with like honesty around a willingness to sort of trade to protect the the franchise for the long term. Like when he traded Garnett and Pierce to the, to the nets, I mean, it was one of the, you know, one of the best deals that, that um, the Celtics could have done. One of the more difficult things for us green teamers, right. Especially to see Pierce go and not have his whole career be in green. Um, but he, yeah, he's just proven to be an amazing general manager all around. It's cool that you got to interact with him. And in, in, um, yeah, that, that's why the job, as team council is a dream job. You get to yeah. look sports. It's just a wonderful opportunity to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And now it, it, what a, what a, what a great second act three point foundation. I'm really, it's really, really, really impressive second act. Neil, I'm excited to share this conversation with the world. Is there, is there anything else that, um, that we didn't cover that you wanted to, to share like with the sort of the Boston community and beyond uh, before we wrap up? I'm, I, I think we've covered a lot of uh, great topics by your questions, and I'm, I'm as, as we would say in the law, I rest. 
<laughs> Wonderful. Um, I, I, I'm going to rest now too, and then, and then also eat some lunch. Um, and I, I, I wish you a wonderful rest of your day. Um, and Neil, we'll, have to, we'll catch up offline. And as as we've discussed, you know, consider me a a partner, a, a collaborator, a co-conspirator, a co-conspirator in uh, in all things Three Point Foundation moving forward. Really inspired with everything you're doing, and and really grateful for the time today. Um, listen, I really enjoyed talking to you, and um, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Cheers, Boston.